This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. We are um, on the the back half of our walk through the Ten Commandments, and so uh, for time's sake, we're just going to jump right into it this morning. We're on commandment number six. If you'll remember, kind of our our guiding thought through here um, is a thought from R.T. Kendall, a pastor and theologian, who said, if we will walk in the Spirit, we would fulfill the law accidentally, even if we never heard of the Ten Commandments. So we're not looking at this as a list of rules that we're going to keep in order to earn God's favor, but instead we're looking at it as this is the life God intends for us to live, but we can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Now today uh, we're on commandment number six, you shall not murder, and that seems like the easiest one for us to keep, right? If we had time, we could go around the room and you could probably tell how you broke the other ones or you at least know someone who has broke each of the other nine commandments. A lot of us, though, we're not going to know someone who's broken the sixth commandment. Not a lot of, of murderers in our family trees, hopefully. Um, you know, if there are, those family trees tend to die off fairly quickly. But um, so, so we can read that and think, okay, this is, this is actually one I can check the box and then move on. But we're going to see this morning in Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus basically preaches a sermon on the sixth commandment. And in the way he expounds it, he reveals to us that it's not just the external obedience to the law God's looking for, but the internal motivation, that he wants us to be healthy from the inside out. But when we come to this, you shall not murder, one of the most common uh, conversations that we have around this commandment is, what exactly does he mean by murder? When God says don't murder, other translations read, you shall not kill. And so immediately you can launch down this kind of rabbit trail of what exactly does that mean? Now, the, the Hebrew word that's used does mean murder. Right? In, in the context we think of it, that's the way it's used. And so then we have all these side conversations about, well, what about self-defense? What about capital punishment? What about if we're fighting in a war? All of these types of things. But what I, what I want to encourage us with, those are worthy conversations. We're not going to have them today. The primary point of the sixth commandment is that God is a God of life and death is a symptom of sin. And any time there is death in the world, as God's people, our response is to mourn that death to whomever it occurs and however it occurs, however it happens to them. And so, so what we don't want to do, we don't want to be the people who are like, okay, so he says, do not murder, but when's it okay for me to kill? That, but that's the approach. And I, I understand where I'm preaching this morning. We are in the heartland of conceal and carry and open carry and stand your ground. You've thought through the situations of, you know, just fe- it feels like at times in Oklahoma, there are men, maybe some women, but mostly men who just walk around waiting. Just like you've played through all this. You sit, you won't sit with your back to the door in a restaurant. Everybody's a threat until they've proven otherwise over the course of about five years. You're waiting, you're armed to the teeth and you are ready for a fight, right? You sit at work and you think, man, I, I just wish that guy would come at me. Just come at me and I will, I will handle it, right? When we take this approach of, I know I'm not supposed to murder, but God, when can I kill him? When's it gonna be okay for me to kill him? We're, if we take the, think of it the other way, okay? So we're gonna get to uh, the commandment about adultery. Now, if, if you're married and you hear do not commit adultery and your first response is, okay, what can I do with that other woman though before it's considered adultery? Is your wife gonna be happy with that? Is that gonna go well for you, right? That's not gonna honor God. It's not gonna honor your spouse. It's not gonna honor your marriage. It's the same thing with the command do not murder. If our first question is, okay, I won't murder, but when can I kill? 
We've missed the whole point. I won't murder, but when can I do violence? We've missed the whole point. God is a God of life, and as his people, we are to be people of life. This is increasingly difficult for us in the culture we live in. We, we live in one of the most violent periods of history of all time. Over the past 100 years, we have killed each other in increasingly effective ways and increasingly large numbers. As our nations have grown, as our technology has advanced, we figured out ways to wipe out masses of humanity in a matter of moments. We figured out ways to kill unborn children, ways to justify killing the elderly, the weak, the disabled. And even if we don't fully agree with all of those applications of death, as God's people, we're supposed to be the ones who are fighting for, advocating, and celebrating life, not looking for ways to participate in death. We mourn death. And I know for some of us, like, that sounds an awful lot like pacifism. Jesus was a whole lot closer to that than he was a warmonger. Right? Jesus wouldn't be walking around with his open carry just waiting to shoot. So now if, if you do that, I'm not saying that, that you're not a Christian. I am saying we need to constantly evaluate the condition of our heart and ask God to help us understand why is it that I am so consistently drawn to kind of these violent fantasies and violent thoughts and looking to, to operate in a space where God lets me pour out my wrath in a way that's acceptable to him. The wrath of God was poured out once and for all on Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are now to live as people of resurrection, not as people of death and destruction. So Matthew chapter 5, Jesus comes and he begins to expand the law. Because just like us in his day, there are people who think, yeah, I've never murdered. I nailed that one. Earlier this week, I was talking with Cameron. I, I kind of had a short work week because Angie and I had to go out of town for some meetings. And he was asking me, hey, how's the, the sermon prep going? And I said, you know what? Actually, it went really well this week. This is just one of those that, that flows naturally. And Cameron said, well, yeah, it's always easy when Jesus preaches the sermon for you. Right? Like he, he kind of lays it out in Matthew 5. You want to you know what it means? Here's how you apply it. This is what you do. So, so that's what we're doing. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, we're not just satisfied with not murdering, with not killing, but we even want God to remove every seed in our heart that would lead to those behaviors. So in case you are tempted to justify yourself in your own righteousness, Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21, and says, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which means empty-headed, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, which is you know an idiot, a moron in, in our vernacular, you will be in danger of the fire of hell. So in this passage, Jesus is identifying the the attitudes and the actions that will eventually play themselves out in murder. Every murder is rooted in these two things. And what he's telling us is, as my people, I'm not satisfied with you just not acting it out. But my kingdom has come to completely restore and renew your hearts, to remove the anger, to remove the bitterness, to remove the rage. And if you choose to allow it to stay in your heart... You are subjecting yourself to judgment. Jesus is being very, very direct with us. 
Again, I want to go back to something R.T. Kendall wrote. It's a little bit longer, so hang in there with me. He said, we do not naturally admit that anger is murder or that hate is murder. We do not admit that holding a grudge is murder. We do not admit that if we do not forgive and do not forgive totally, it is murder. If we gossip, we do not admit that it is murder. You say, well, how can gossip be that? It's because gossip, like jealousy, is a part of the family of hate. A person is jealous because he hates, and hate is murder. The first account of murder in the Bible is recorded in the fourth chapter of Genesis when Cain killed his brother Abel. It was all because he was jealous, which stemmed from hate, which led to murder. And and so Kendall's doing the same thing Jesus does in Matthew 5. He's just kind of following this out to its logical conclusion. If the, the worst thing according to the law, is to murder in our relationships with each other, then Jesus is saying, let's back it up and not just prevent the worst thing, but let's get rid of all the underlying things that will lead you to that point. And for you and I, when we, when we hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, they, they should crush us. Anyone who is angry is subject to judgment. Now, he's not talking about righteous anger. There are times when we see evil being perpetrated in the world, when we see children being abused, when we see injustice occurring, that God gives us by his spirit this righteous anger that rises up so that we will participate in his kingdom with him in the world. That's not what Jesus is talking about. When he says anyone who's angry, he means that unrighteous anger. And we all know what that is. It's, it's, it's the feelings that boil up and, and boil over anytime anyone dares to treat us as less than the gods that we think we are. Right? How dare they insult me? How dare they overlook me? How dare they cut in line in front of me? How dare they cut me off on the highway? How dare they try to take what is mine? How dare they take credit for what I did? And in all of these things, our anger begins to build up. Jesus says, anyone who is angry is subject to judgment. And, and we all feel the weight of that because we've all been angry. Right? I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but anybody lose their temper last week? Anybody lose their temper on the way to church this morning, right? I I mean, I know that never happens, mom and dad. You've never yelled at your kids, shut up, we're going to church. Except for this morning when you did, right? If you don't get out of bed, right? You've had those moments like, we're going to worship Jesus, smile and be happy. And you yelled at them the whole way in and you're probably gonna yell at them the whole way home, right? And and I'm with you because sometimes they just deserve it. But Jesus is telling us, look, if you're angry, anybody fly off the handle? You ever been so mad that you, like five minutes in, you don't even know what you're saying anymore? Words are coming out. You're talking to a spouse. You're talking to a child. You're talking to a friend, to an employee, to a family member, to someone who's wronged you, to the customer service person on the phone. Like that's the easiest one because they don't know you, right? The, the times I've lost, I remember once I was sitting in my office back in the, my youth pastor days, so I wasn't quite as holy as I am now. And I don't remember who it was. I was talking to some customer service person about something and they were not giving me what I wanted. So I got up and I shut my door because I knew it was about to get loud. And I lost my mind to the point that one of my coworkers came down, knocked on the door, opened it, was like, is everything okay in here? Like, it's fine, shut the door. And Jesus says, if you're angry, you're subject to judgment. He doesn't say if you're angry, it's okay. They probably deserved it. It's okay, that person is an idiot. It's okay, they, you're doing them a favor. You're speaking truth. You're a prophet. <laughs> right? You ever try to justify it that way? Well, it's just sometime there is a righteous indignation 
when somebody cuts me off and the only way I can communicate is with honking the horn and sign language, right? That's not it. This is not Jesus says you're under judgment. Now, what does he mean there? Does he mean you're under God's judgment? So as, as, as God's people, those who have received the, the salvation that Jesus offers, the new life that he's offered, Jesus has paid the price once and for all for all of our sins. Right, so, so he's not saying if you're a Christian, you get angry, you're going to lose your salvation. But what he is saying, is if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you get angry, you will still experience some of God's judgment in, in just the, the natural outworkings of your anger. For some of you, this is why your marriage is so bad. Because you've never dealt with the anger, the bitterness, the disappointment that's underneath. And you've let it, let it build this huge wall between you and your spouse over months, over years, over decades. And every time something new happens, there's this new round of anger that rises up. And God, in his grace, allows you to experience his judgment, the consequences of that. That's why you feel the disconnect from your spouse. And, and that's a good thing because God's judgment is supposed to point us towards his mercy. When we're experiencing the consequences of our sin, it's supposed to point us towards his life. So the fact that your marriage is bad, you don't have a good relationship with your kid, you get fired from your job, school is difficult, your friends are mad at you, all of these things, it's not a sign that you are the innocent martyr and the world is out to get you. It's a sign that there is some deep-seated anger and bitterness in your heart and it is poisoning everything. And Jesus then offers us a solution, but before he does that, he also warns us it's not just about what's in your heart, it's also about the words that come out of your mouth. He says, if, if anyone says to a brother or sister, Raka, you're answerable to the court, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. When I was in elementary school, I had a buddy, um, and we were at uh, recess one day playing basketball. And somebody, I, I grew up, my dad was a pastor, so I was familiar with this passage. And we're playing basketball on the playground, and somebody misses a shot. And my friend yells at him, you fool! And I turned to him and said, you're going to hell! Because I, I thought it meant if you said fool, so I called my friends all kinds of words, but I never said fool. Because I, I thought that meant like one-way ticket straight to Hell, it's not what Jesus is telling us. What Jesus is teaching us is that our, our words are never empty and powerless, but our words reveal and they reinforce what is in our hearts. And so, so when you begin to speak angry words to someone or about someone, you are participating in a process where you are stripping away their dignity and their identity as a fellow image bearer of God. And as you begin to attach other names and other phrases to them, you are positioning your heart to be in a space where you're okay for violence to be done to them, whether it comes at your hands or the hands of someone else. Right, this is why, as Christians, we should be leading the charge to reject any political discourse that tries to dehumanize our opponents. Before they were Democrat, Republican, before they were Christian or Muslim, before they were anything else, they were men and women, sons and daughters created in the image of God to know him and to enjoy life with him forever. And for us to allow our words to strip that away from them places us in a position where we are no longer in line with God's kingdom and God's ways. Your words reveal and reinforce what is in your heart. So Jesus is telling us, look, if you don't want to be a murderer, then don't speak the words that lead to that. 
right? Because those words are coming out of a dark spot in your heart, and those words are helping that dark spot to grow. So he says, don't, don't murder, don't be angry, don't speak angry words, get rid of all of these seeds of murder. And so if we find ourselves there and you think, that's, that's great, I would love to live a life where I don't lose my temper. I would love to live a life where I'm not always apologizing for what I said. And I would, I would love to live in a way where I could meet frustration with a peaceful and calm response. I would love to no longer be the, the escalator in every situation, just turning it up one more notch, but I don't know how to do that. Jesus finishes in Matthew 5 by telling us exactly how. He says you need to be reconciled. First, he says you need to be reconciled to those you're close to. And so he gives this picture of if you're going to the temple and you're going to offer a gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister, someone you're in relationship with, has a problem with you, your response before you offer that gift is to go and be reconciled to them. Right? So Jesus puts an, an expectation on us as his people that not just when I have a problem with you, am I going to go and say, hey, I, I need to let you know I forgive you. I, I'm moving past this. But when I know you have a problem with me, my response can't be, I don't care what they think of me. My response can't be, that's their problem, not mine. But my response is to go to you and to say, hey, can we make this right? Can we sort this out? Can we reestablish our relationship with each other? Because I, as a follower of Jesus, I can't live, and you're not supposed to be able to live in a world where there is anger, bitterness, rage, hatred between brothers and sisters in Christ. The church will never be free of conflict, but we should not have long-lasting conflict. When it's recognized, it should be resolved and reconciled by the presence of Christ in us. Jesus then expands it and he says, okay, so you might be able to do that. Let's take it one step further. If your adversary, your enemy is taking you to court, you need to go to them and you need to make things right as quickly as possible. I want you to hear the, the phrase he uses. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. The, the literal translation of that settle matters quickly is make friends with. So again, he's putting the, the burden of action on us as his people. As a follower of Jesus, I am to be a bridge builder, not a bridge burner. So when I know my enemy has a problem with me, I mean, we know this from watching Jesus' life. We, we pray for those who persecute us. Right? We love our enemies. We turn the other cheek. These are all of his teachings that we know and love to ignore. Because they are really hard to live out. But what he's saying is, look, if you're going to be people who truly and authentically keep the sixth commandment, it means you have to embrace life even in your most difficult relationships. A writer named Michael Wilkins puts it this way, fulfilling the law's command, do not murder, is not accomplished simply by avoiding legal homicide. Jesus reveals that the intent of the law is to nurture relationships. So, Again, for, for each of the Ten Commandments, we're, most of them were given the negative. Don't do this. But on the other side of the negative is a positive. Do this. Don't murder. Be people of life. Don't get angry. Don't speak harshly. Do seek reconciliation. Do speak words of life, words of comfort, words of encouragement. As God's people, he not only calls us but equips us to build bridges with one another, even when life is difficult, so that anger, bitterness, rage, hatred, envy, gossip, jealousy, all of these things cannot take root in our hearts. And yet many of us know from our own experience, we're never going to do that on our own. 
It is just like, it would be so easy for me to obey Matthew 5 if everyone else would just straighten up. You ever have that feeling? Like, man, I would be so much nicer if that guy would never talk to me again. I would be so kind and compassionate if she would quit and move away. I could be so gracious and full of love if my children just understood when I say it, do it. I'd never yell again, right? I would love to parent in this voice right now all of the time. But there's a whole lot of this that goes on because I can't do it in my own. You can't do it in your own either. You know that. You've experienced that no matter how hard you try. And here's the thing. Some of you, you're thinking, no, I can. No, I can. I don't, I don't yell. I'm not crazy like you. I don't yell at my kids. I don't yell at my spouse. That's fine. Sit there in your self-righteousness and lie to yourself. All right? You might not yell like I do. Maybe you were raised in a different home where yelling was a sin instead of a normal mode of communication. But here, here's, here's what I know. Even if, if you're not a screamer, even if you're not a name caller, even if you're not a, a, a Facebook warrior getting on there with your diatribes that no one cares about anyways, but you're going to get it out for the world to see, you might not do any of that. You might do all of that. But even if you can perfectly control all of the outward expressions, the anger still lives in your heart, and that's where Jesus says the problem is. And so what do we do? When it's an internal problem that we are powerless to fix on our own, what do we do? We surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Galatians 5, he describes this life of the flesh, the life according to our own powers, our own desires. Right? And he talks about how we'll give in to bitterness and envy and fits of rage and anger and all of these other things. And, and then he says in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. When we belong to Christ, Paul tells us, first of all, our old way of life was crucified with him. The life that constantly fought for, I have to be first, I have to be recognized, I cannot be wronged, and if I am, I have to fix it. Paul says, all of that died with Jesus. You died with him. We remember this in baptism. We are put under the water as a sign. I have died with him, and now I have raised to new life. And Paul says, in this new life, it's not about you and your efforts. It's about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit going to work in your heart. So, so for many of us, we've tried the anger management route, and it doesn't work. You can do it for a season. You can do it in one relationship. But if there's anger, it always seeps out. If there's bitterness, it always comes out. If there's jealousy, it always comes out. And the only hope we have is that we receive the new life in Christ. We die to that old way of life. And we ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill us from the inside out. And what Paul says is the Spirit will come and he will begin to plant his fruit in you, his supernatural ability to love, to have joy, to be patient, to be kind, to be good, to be faithful, to display self-control, all of these things. And as the Spirit plants that way down deep in your soul, 
He's going to go deeper than the hurt. He's going to go deeper than the pain. He's going to go deeper than the anger and the rage. He's going to go deeper than the wrongs that were done to you. He's going to go deeper than your deepest fears of, but but man, if I give up all of my ability to protect myself, what's going to happen? The Spirit's going to run deeper than all of that. And His fruit's going to grow and He's going to bring love and He's going to bring joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. He's going to give you the ability to be faithful, to exercise self-control. And as He does, He's going to push up and push out all of that other anger, all of that other bitterness, all of that other rage. And he's going to keep building up and keep building up and keep building up. And those temptations might come back, but they're not going to be able to settle deep down in your soul anymore. Because you are full of the spirit, you are displaying his fruit. And when we live that way, we will be people of reconciliation. We will be people of life. And it creates one of the most amazing testimonies of the power of Christ to a world that desperately needs him. When there is an individual, and especially when there's a community of people who are committed to life and to reconciliation, to walking through the highs and the lows, to replacing all of our cultural expectations for how we interact as friends and family and as enemies, when all of that is is removed and we instead operate in the fruit of the Spirit, he pushes it up, he pushes it out. You don't have to have an angry marriage anymore. Your relationship with your kids does not have to be defined by friction and anxiety. You don't have to walk into work looking for another fight. You don't have to walk around just hoping you don't explode. The power of the Spirit in you is greater than every temptation you will face and greater than every wrong that has been done to you. You might have very real reasons for the anger and bitterness that are in your heart. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus goes deeper than that. His healing comes and brings absolute freedom to your soul. If you'll stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to pray for us. Lord, you see each one of us. You see how quick we are, Lord, to dismiss ourselves from the truth of the gospel. Jesus, you see even now the excuses that we're making of this doesn't apply to me, I'm exempted from it, he doesn't know what's happened to me. Holy Spirit, we ask that in this moment you would come with your conviction, showing us that there is nothing that has happened or might happen that is outside your ability to sow love and joy and peace and patience in us. Lord, I pray for those who in this moment are recognizing that the the anger, the bitterness in their hearts is poisoning their relationships. Lord, I ask that they would see the answer is you. It always has been you. It's your salvation. It's your deliverance. It's your forgiveness. Holy Spirit, will you come? Plant your fruit, your life deep within us. Give us the ability to love, to have joy, to express peace, to demonstrate patience, to be kind, to be good, to be faithful. Lord, will you do in us what we can never seem to do for ourselves? 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.